Kia ora. Thanks for tuning in to the We Fucking Love Style Ups podcast, brought to you by Talent Army. Hey everyone, Troy Hammond here and welcome back or welcome to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast. Today is actually a special series that we're going to be pushing out over the next couple of months. We're currently sitting at the Sunrise Festival or the Sunrise Conference by Blackbird. It's a conference for founders to hear the stories of other founders and really help network, uplift, um, read the playbook and hear the playbook from other founders. So it's quite a unique series that we're pushing out. They're going to be shorter episodes, 30-minute episodes, really amazing guests, and so I hope you really enjoy them. On this episode, we're chatting with Justin T or JT for short. JT is an Aussie living and working in Sydney. He works for a company called Eucalyptus, which is a health tech startup really doing big things in Australia and the world. And so we talked to him about how they're expanding globally and what he's personally doing to help with that. I hope you enjoy. Hey, so you uh, you have a real interesting background, right? Like you've gone the whole, started out as a lawyer, a legal clerk, um, management consultant, and then into startups. Like really keen. Is it, was that was the path to always get into this side of the world, this, like this industry? Or were you just like working, you grinding your way up and then just sort of fell into it? My career plan was pretty random. Yeah. So I started off studying law at university, um, worked at a law firm for three years throughout university, did the whole kind of summer clerkship type thing as well. Mm. And then I just got to the end of that clerkship um, and this firm and uh, had this grad contract, which a lot of my peers, you know, really wanted as well. And I just didn't feel super excited about how I was going to spend the next four years of my life. So I ended up um, doing some soul searching, applying to a bunch of different jobs as well and consulting just happened to be one of the things that I applied for. Actually, a friend at the time, um, I'd never considered a career in consulting and a friend at the time sort of pushed me in that direction. Mm. And yeah, the interview process was a bunch of case studies and interviews and things like that. I was just talking about business and I really enjoyed it and ended up getting an offer and um, decided that was going to be a good place to start my career. I did that for about three and a half years and actually tried to leave a couple of times. But the first time I um, left, I was going to take a gaming scale-up job in Singapore. And a little fact about me is I used to be a Singaporean citizen. Like my parents um, gave me that by descent. Yeah. And in Singapore, if you're a male, when you turn 21, you need to serve in the army. So I had to make a decision between being a Singaporean citizen or an Australian citizen, and I chose to keep my Australian citizenship. So um, what that effectively meant is I could never work and live or live in Singapore again. Oh, stink. And so I missed out on that job um, just narrowly. And then a couple months after that, COVID happened. So I decided to sort of stay put for a couple of years, came out of COVID, doing consulting through COVID was pretty tough. Um, just like very long hours and kind of like- you were at Bain too, right? Like a big consulting company, right? Exactly. Started yeah. off at Bain and Company. So really, really great um, culture, really great training, but was really tough during COVID um, and clients definitely expected a lot. Yeah. Uh, when I came out of COVID though, I had this amazing project in Brizzy and I was finishing at five every day. I was making a decent amount of money. And um, I kind of just remember walking home from the client to my hotel and being like, this is probably as good as it gets. Like, and I, was, I felt really happy, but I still felt like I was missing something. Mm. And so um, I knew that what I was missing was I, like one of my passions actually is, is education and mm -hmm. also healthcare. Like my dad's type 2 diabetic. So I sort of saw how that affected his life mm. um, as I was growing up. And... 
yeah, I took two or three months off to try and start my own ed tech business. And it was really hard. In Sydney? In Sydney, exactly. So I was talking to, at the time, like a few tutoring centers, trying to do some sort of play on data and reporting to help them optimize operations and things like that. And we did a few pilots. But what I wasn't expecting was a lot of the back ad- office admin, you know, and yeah. all the internal operation stuff. And what I kind of walked away from that experience realizing is I didn't really know how to build an amazing business. What I had spent a lot of my early career doing was learning the fundamentals of how to optimize um, okay businesses and trying to make them a little bit better. Mm. And so I started interviewing at a bunch of startups. At that time, it was 2021. Everyone was raising lots and lots of money. Eucalyptus was one of just one of like a few companies that 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 was doing that at the time. And uh, yeah, I probably talked to like ten to fifteen different startups at the time. But you and, knew a startup that you wanted to do after doing your own thing, right? Exactly. I I knew that I wanted to go to another startup or scale up and learn from people who were actually doing it and mm. understand what it actually took to to build something great. Yeah. So yeah, Eucalyptus just happened to be one of the companies I was talking to at the time, and I talked to a lot of founders a lot. And I, like my controversial opinion is there's sort of like two or three each buckets of founders, mm-hmm. and I found the third one thankfully. What are the but, three? So the first bucket is there were a lot of really amazing, talented founders who were working on problems that I personally didn't find super interesting. So yeah. um, there are a lot of people who you know really like blockchain and all of those different things, and like I think uh, it just really depends on like I guess your what your interests are. Yeah. So there were a lot of really smart individuals working on things that I didn't find super interesting or super um, tangible. Mm-hmm. Then there were a lot of people who were working on really interesting problems, but uh, it wasn't that they weren't impressive, but they weren't necessarily super inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were probably very similar in terms of life experience at that point in time, and they were very new founders. And then I kind of met Tim and Benny, who were the founders of Uke, and they were working on this healthcare mission. And then obviously I'd had that personal experience with my dad as well. And it was just kind of like this right fit. Like it was just this thing where I felt like nervous about the opportunity and mm-hmm. whether I was going to get it. Um, and they grilled me pretty hard in the interview. But then when I got it, I was excited. And I'd actually felt that feeling before when I left law and I started in consulting. So I knew that it was like this good feeling combination of nerves my daughter calls that nerve excitement nerve excitement yeah Yeah, i love that yeah (laughs) and i think whenever yeah i I think it's like i've just learned to um trust my intuition a little bit more Mm. over the years as well and that feeling is always like a sign that you're onto something good Mm. so that was so what was it about the guys that really like struck a chord with you yeah i think um from the first conversation just like their ability to like very directly get to know you. There was there weren't any real barriers. There was like a lot of yeah. There was no facade, and I kind of felt like I could. Tr- I, I trusted and I knew who I was dealing with. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that nervous feeling as well. I, like I think from that first interaction, they asked me some of the um, some questions that so many people had never really been willing to engage with, and that was quite refreshing. Felt like I was going to be challenged. And then at the same time, at the end of those interactions, I walked away feeling um, quite uplifted in the sense that, like, even though they knew so much more than me, they were genuinely curious to hear what my thoughts and opinions were on a bunch of things that they were thinking about at the time. And so, yeah, it was this nervousness of sort of, I guess, being amongst people who were doing things that I really wanted to learn about. And then at the same time, this excitement and feeling like I could add value or um, I guess, yeah, help them help them move the their mission yeah. forward as well. So what value, like, I mean, 
It's, it's obvious to me, right? Because I've interviewed a, few, a bunch of people that have come from management consulting into startups totally. and there's so many great skills that you can bring in, right? But for people listening to this, what skill sets like were really valuable that you could bring in? Yeah, totally. Um, when I joined, the, the things that I thought I was going to bring were completely different to the things that I ended up doing, um, which is probably something you hear a lot of as well. Mm-hmm. But um, a little backstory of, on Bain & Company. So uh, there are sort of three big management consulting firms and Bain & Company is known for being the party one. Um, so a lot more investment or intentionality around culture and, and connectivity and how to, like, I guess, the consultants in the cohorts actually, I guess, support each other. Mm-hmm. So that's a long window way of saying just that we thought a lot about the people experience and a lot about hiring and a lot about onboarding, et cetera. And so when I came to Eucalyptus at the time, um, Benny hired three of us from from Bain and one um, one of them, James Rankin, he's actually a Kiwi originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was looking into what's now known as our weight management program. So I'll talk a little bit more about that if you're interested later, but essentially it's our biggest brand now. Mm-hmm. And uh, another girl named Rebecca, she uh, was looking to take that brand to the UK. So that was like our first international expansion. I was actually brought in to do essentially what was a copycat of PillPack in, by Amazon in, in America. So like lots of old people, they have many, many different medications. And a lot of the times they, it's easy to mix up. It's easy to forget yeah. to take your medications. And a lot of them then end up getting admitted to hospital. So we were looking to do a version of that in Australia. Um, but one of the things that I think we, whenever we get more focused at Eucalyptus, we do really, really well. And so at that point in time, what we realized was we were launching too many new things. And so my brand ended up getting killed. But I asked enough annoying questions to Benny and Tim about, you know, What's our mission? Is it still the same mission? Is it, do we still have the same values? Do we still have the same ways of working as uh, when you guys started the company two years ago? Because all of those things look a little bit dusty. And actually now, um, you know, what was a merry band of four, four guys is now like this company of 100 people. And now it's 400 people. And so at that point in time, I, I asked enough annoying questions and we didn't have a head of people. And they were like, hey, man, this brand, we might need to put it on ice for a bit. But actually, do you want to help us bid up the people function? And so uh, all of that experience from Bain, like I never came into Eucalyptus thinking that I would take a role in people, but it came... The best people people are people that haven't studied it, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that yeah. in hindsight as well. Um, but I think I just had this passion for wanting to make it an awesome place to work, wanting to make it a place where people could start and continue their careers for a very long time because we had a lot of intentionality around learning and development um, and progression and pathways, et cetera. So, yeah, I ended up spending six months in the people team, um, uh, building out the talent function, building out people operations, and then also eventually setting up um, an operation in Manila so that we could help to scale a lot of our back office functions. Mm, yeah. Awesome, man, awesome. So what is eucalyptus then for people that are listening to this, are Kiwis, right? And they, what Eucalyptus is a tree for a start, um, <laughs> but, but it's also a brand and a company in Australia. So do, can you give us your elevator pitch on what Eucalyptus is? Totally. So we're a digital healthcare startup. Mm-hmm. Essentially what we do is we connect doctors, um, pharmacists and aftercare support. So like dietitians, nutritionists, nurses and pharmacists as well, who provide a lot of attention as you take the medication or go through our coaching programs. Um, and how we connect all of them together is we provide this platform where the patient data is essentially encrypted, protected, but then also able to be transferred between these different practitioners. Patients 
typically access our program on their phone or on mm -hmm. um, you know a web browser. But they can do that all from the comfort of their living room, so they never have to actually leave their home to get access to treatment. Mm. Um, and we do this around a very narrow condition, a set of conditions. So uh, we have like a men's health brand pilot. We have a brand focused on uh, reproduction and fertility and contraception. So kin. Yeah. We have one that's more focused on prescription grade skincare. So differentiated from the things that you can just get um, at your local pharmacy. And then our most recent brand, which is now actually almost two years old, Juniper, started off as a brand looking to help women um, address like the side effects of menopause. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been quite a lot of misinformation over the decades around um, hormonal replacement therapies and their effect in, in supporting women through menopause. Mm -hmm. What we actually found was women were more interested in the side effect around weight gain and how do they actually lose weight and manage their weight. So what it's now become is actually this brand that's helped women to navigate that um, challenge of putting on a lot of weight as you go through menopause and as your hormones change so that they can regain that second half of their life um, and kind of live it in a way that's on, on their own terms. Awesome. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you you guys acquired Weight Watchers, right? No, so yeah. Uh, this, Jenny Craig. The Jenny yeah, Craig. Sorry, Jenny, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Jenny Craig, unfortunately, um, went through an administration earlier in the year. And in Australia, what we did was we struck a deal to acquire the customer list. Mm -hmm. So what we said was there's a list of women who are um, still like, I think with weight loss, one of the things that we're, one of the narratives that we're trying to change is not about losing weight, actually mm -hmm. losing the weight part. I think everyone knows this is, it can be easy. The hard part is how do you then Maintain change? It. Exactly. How mm -hmm. do you change your lifestyle? How, like, um, do you learn enough about nutrition and exercise, et cetera, and how to make it easy for yourself to maintain? Yeah, everyone can fast way. for 30 days, right? But then totally. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it a million times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stop, you stop going to the gym, stop walking, and then studying burgers again. Yeah. Exactly. And so, yeah, the, I guess the goal with Jenny Craig was there are these women who had this solution. This solution is, like, not really sure where what the home is anymore. Can we give them another solution um, mm -hmm. to help them for the rest of their life? So med tech, health tech is crazy town at the moment, right? It's blowing up everywhere. Every, so many people are getting into it. But there's some real complexities with the data and, like, lots of things. Like, I imagine it's been a hard slog, you know, going through what you guys have done in terms of growth. Like, can you talk through some of the, like, the highs and lows that have been at Uke? Yeah, totally. I think on the data privacy safety side as well, like, it from the outside, the founders had this incredible e-commerce experience at Koala, right? And that really sets you up for understanding a lot about um, how to market to customers, how to provide a digital experience, um, operational excellence, those kinds of things. But I think we're prioritizing and we're learning a lot about what it means to create a medically safe business as well. And so we have very large safety and risk teams. Um, we have very, very private information about um, patients as well. And so we've had to learn about what it means. We've actually had to take cybersecurity and those kinds of things really, really seriously. Mm -hmm. And how, how do we build those capabilities? Because at the end of all of it, if we can treat this data with a lot of sensitivity and give that confidence to patients that they can trust us with their information. There's also a lot that we can do for them in return in terms of the preventative space. Mm. But in the first place, we actually need to demonstrate to them that we can be trusted with their information. And not just patients, right? Because doctors and nurses and everyone like are extremely wary of what happens with information, right? And so, totally. Yeah. Exactly. 
Yeah. Interesting, man. Interesting. And so you, you joined Nuka, 100 people, you said? Exactly. And it's now at 400. Yeah. Initially as the head of people, then you went into strategy role and then to like international expansion. And I think your, your title now is like head of international expansion and talent or something. Yeah, is that right? exactly. So I uh, started off as head of people. Um, we, uh, like most tech companies, went through a period of sort of stabilization or like slowing down in growth last year. Yeah. Um, around that time is when we decided to launch our office in Manila. We actually uh, learned a lot from our friends at Canva and we have quite a few team members who started their careers at Canva. Yeah. Um, and Canva has this incredible um, engine room of about 700 designers, operators in Manila. And so we kind of, I guess, looked to do the same thing. And that's been a huge unlock for us in terms of accessing another talent pool mm. um, at a time when it was really competitive and super hard to hire almost anyone in Australia. From there, um, we did another raise. How, how did you year. do that? Can you talk me through that? Because that's yeah. interesting for people, right? Because a lot of people offshore things, right? But then they just, they don't do it right. And I yeah. think you've got to do, you have to have some strategy around how you're offshore or something. And yeah. So We actually don't really use the word offshore team or outsource team. Okay. It's not about like, I think, being politically correct, but we genuinely see them as a core part, part of the team. The team. Yeah. Um, I think it's one of those things where if you go to uh, another market, a market that's typically used for offshoring, and you don't invest the time and the energy and the effort to find good people, like you will find yeah. not good people. Yeah. And so we spent a lot of time and set the bar extremely high in terms of what good looked like. And if you look hard enough, you will find good people. And then I think the second part of it is it's not just about finding the good people, but um, what we saw when we were going through Canva is you have to treat them well. You have to do everything that you would do as if that person was sitting in your core local market or HQ or whatever. So it's all the things around like, do they have a good, do they have an exciting and a comfortable place to go to work? Mm. Um, do they have a sense of community from the people that they work with? Are you investing in their learning and development? Are there career pathways for them? Um, do you give them feedback? Like it sounds like all the basic stuff, but we went through a few different, we walked through a few different providers and yeah, there, there are a lot of really, um, less good operations in the Philippines. And that's just because they're not set up to invest in people. Yeah, 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 agreed. And I mean, Manila, Philipp like the Philippines, in general, such sweet, lovely people, right? Like for totally. a start, yeah, yeah. Like and I think one of the really interesting things as well is as we started to um, broaden our horizons and be a bit more open to it, um, you start to realize a few things. Like, so in Australia, um, I grew up in the West and uh, in most of the hospital systems, actually a lot of the nurses are Filipino. And these are just sort of things that like, they're just kind of facts of life. You don't really think about them too much. Mm. But then when you look into the data, right, actually um, per capita, the Philippines has four times as many nurses per capita um, as Australia. Um, so it kind of makes sense that a lot of uh, Filipino nurses, you know, migrate to Australia and um, like build their careers there. Mm. They have, but they also produce a lot of nurses in schools. And then when you look at sectors like CX, uh, customer service, mm -hmm. They have entire industries built around these capabilities, whereas I think in Australia, um, a lot of people who go into CX initially, um, they might be a university student just kind of looking for a casual part-time job. Yeah. Um, you do have like occasional CX leaders who build careers in CX, but the talent pool is actually very small. And so in the Philippines, you have access to this whole industry of veterans who've been doing customer service for 30 mm -hmm. years, and that's their core craft. And so... 
um, yeah, they're just like, I think these really interesting opportunities to tap into really deep pools of talent um, in capabilities that aren't necessarily what Australia is strong at. Mm. So, so talk me through like how long you've been at Yuk now? Just over two years. Two years. Yeah, yeah. Just over two years. So what, what if you if you were to go back and look at your two years and go, oh yeah, fuck that up. I should have done that better or I really nailed that. Like, is there things that come to your mind straight away? When I first started in the head of people role, at the time, uh, the markets were very rich with capital and we were one of the beneficiaries of that as well. Mm. And I think- Because you um, guys would raise big. Right? We, we raise a decent amount of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't want to take full responsibility for it, but I do definitely, it, was, it is something that I carry with me. So we designed a very efficient talent system. Um, I, I mean, I understand you're a recruiter yourself as yeah, well. Yeah. And I think um, it felt very good at the time, right, to be delivering outcomes at pace. But I think in hindsight, what we didn't have as, w- as well at the time is a lot of like intentionality around what are the capabilities that we're missing and are we hiring in the right places? Are we hiring for tomorrow or are we hiring for yesterday? Mm-hmm. And when you're moving at that speed, if you're hiring for the capabilities that you need today, you're almost hiring for yesterday. And by the time the person arrives, which is, you know, it's like a four to six week interview process, four weeks of notice, you're a completely different business. So by the time the person arrives, um, it may not be the right fit anymore. And so we didn't have enough foresight a, a lot of the time at that time. Oh, and man, then I think this, when those this, pe- this soundbite, like I, I, t- I have this conversation every day. And yeah. so like, uh, <laughs> preach, man. Yeah. yeah. And I think we're a lot more disciplined in that um, sense now which I'm really glad that we got there. But so how do you, but how do you explain, how do you get yeah. founders to come on that, that ride with you, right? Because recruitment, finding talent, especially when you've raised a bunch of money and founders are like, okay, VC is breathing down my neck now, let's fucking hire, let's just go fast. How do you take a step back and say, all right, this is how we need to do like recruitment readiness. We need to put some plans in place in terms of the workforce plan over the next 24 months now and we need to hire for the next stage. How do you educate people like that? Totally. I think the, yeah, okay, so there's the, very tactical, being intentional about it and doing all the, you know, hygiene things around workforce planning, et cetera. Mm-hmm. There's also, I think for us at Eucalyptus, um, this unfortunate experiential heuristic that we, that we now live with, because I think off the back of that very rapid hiring, there was this then mm-hmm. kind of like this tap stopped and we had to start to, yeah, do all of these things like workforce planning, et cetera. And we, like most companies last year, went through, um, you know, restructuring as yeah, well. Yeah. And so I think we live every day with that responsibility of not, not wanting to go through that again. Yeah. So we're very disciplined around, do we really need that right now? What are the conditions under which we would actually want to make that higher? So it's, I think at that time, um, the model of operation was we would hire a lot ahead of growth mm-hmm. and every, everyone was growing at incredible speeds. So we would just expect the growth to come. Now, I think we're a lot more disciplined around, okay, we probably need, know that we need that higher, but we'll wear through that growth period a little bit more rather than make the hire too early. Yeah, stress so, test it, right? Exactly. Yeah. So let's see the growth first, then we'll backfill, then we'll backfill the roles as opposed to hiring ahead of the growth. I think that's the first thing. And then I think the second thing as well is we talk a lot about quality hiring or talk a lot about like, you know, raising the bar, the very Amazon type concept, yeah, yeah. but we didn't actually have very specific things of what that meant for us. So I think quality means different things in different environments. And over the last 12 months, we've gotten a lot clearer in terms of what does a quality hire actually mean? And it also means different things for different teams as well, mm. but getting more specific around 
what a quality hire means is every time we make a hire, we know whether we've done a good hire or not. Um, we've also changed our philosophy a lot on um, the approach that we take to hiring. So I think, again, at that point in time, um, we we were quite passive when it came to hiring. We had a very strong employer brand in Australia. We just let a lot of applicants come through the doors and the funnels. And I think one of the changes in our philosophy around hiring is we want a more even split in terms of people who have applied to us, which we were really grateful for, but at the same time, going out and finding the talent that we yeah. know we need tomorrow because they're the reality is someone who is awesome. It's probably doing an awesome job wherever they're they are. Looking. They're not looking to leave because their employer really values them. And we need to very proactively actually think about what are the capabilities that we need next. And we need to go find those people who are looking for that next adventure yeah. to help us to help us build those capabilities. Yeah, they've got the next playbook too, right? Right. They understand what's coming ahead. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. So I think we've gotten like I think the to summarize, it's we've gotten a lot more specific on what what it means to make a good hire. We've also then just got more discipline on when to make those hires and also the approach that we take to hiring as well is a lot more proactive and a lot more intentional. Mm. Yeah. So what's the future look like for you now? And like, what are you so, you're seeing over the next two to five years? Obviously we're in a weird, weird time where people are having to reassess, like change their business because the last five years is not going to be the next five years, right? And I think a lot of people struggle with that. Some people have been really good at that. And I think everyone's gone through that downsize a little bit, figure out what you need for the business, figure out the people that you need for the next five years. Are they the right people for the next war we're about to fight, right? And so what does that look like for you guys now though? Yeah, totally. So I think on the people side over the last six months, especially, um, we're continuing to refresh our playbooks around L&D at Eucalyptus and performance and how do we really actually invest in the people that are already here and make sure that they're ready for the next stage of the journey. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of our actual growth plans. So we launched in the UK about 18 months ago. Earlier this year, we set up an operation in Germany. And then um, I've just come back from Tokyo, actually, a couple of months in Tokyo. We're looking to launch our Japan operation at the end of October. I think the markets that we've chosen, uh, we, see, we, it's, we see a bit of competition in those, in those markets. But I think being an Aussie company who has also managed to raise money in um, SF as well, mm -hmm. There are these kind of very interesting arbitrage um, advantages that we get. So, for example, in Japan, it's a very immature VC market. There aren't mm. actually a lot of competitors who have the same amount of funding that we do. So the growth rates that they're targeting look very different to, I guess, the ones that we are. And so the approaches that are their go-to-market approaches look very different to what we're willing to do. You go faster. Exactly. We're yeah. willing to invest a little bit more up front, kind of wear the loss, see where it goes. But it all starts with the underlying thesis of, being able to do like, under, like knowing that we can do something in that market. Mm. And so I think for us over the next couple of years, what maybe looks different to what we were planning a couple of years ago is probably won't grow as quickly, but um, we are still looking to, I guess, set up more operations and be ready for when the, I guess, waves of growth come back mm. um, and like have lots of different beachheads in different different countries that we can just scale up when when that time comes. Awesome, man. And so you mentioned before the pod that you um, have only been in Sydney, your home, for a month this year so far. And I'm curious to talk a little bit about that. So remote working is obviously a big thing for a while, right, and meetings on Zoom and the likes. But what do you – like I, I, I personally think the value of sitting across from someone and having a conversation or jumping on a plane and going meeting people, you just can't beat it, is my opinion. What's your experience or what's your thoughts on that? Totally. So at Eucalyptus – we have always prioritized like a hybrid work philosophy. 
And the core essence of that is we also just believe that like we're just born to be with other people mm. and it's really hard to build relationships. There are so many, um, you know, things that aren't said. So like, I think something like 80% of communication is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, just being able to understand and feel the, I guess, different signals in the room. So being in Japan and working remotely with the team was definitely challenging, but I think the trade off there, you're always trading something off. The thing that we were trading off, in favor of was being able to be in the room with a lot of the vendors that we were trying to build relationships with. And I don't actually speak a word of Japanese. I had to learn quite a bit Arigato. In, uh, Arigato. <laughs> um, over the couple of months that I was there. I was very fortunate that we made a really um, opportunistic hire guy who had moved from Japan to Australia 10 years ago. Um, and then he just had, we just had a very serendipitous series of connections that led us to an eventual advisor who opened a lot, a lot of doors for us in Japan. But even with that advisor who was pretty deep in the pharmaceutical industry, um, he couldn't do that much because he wasn't from um, eucalyptus. Mm. And so just being in the room, not really saying anything, but being present um, sent a very strong signal of respect and also that, you know, they were worth our time. And that was the, the main reason why I ended up staying in Japan a little bit longer. Interesting um, business market there, Japan, isn't it? It's, it's like very, int- very really different. built on respect. Totally. Yeah. And, yeah. Actually, it's and tradition. Exactly. And I think, um, yeah, I think what a lot of foreign companies don't realize as quickly, and then they learn it eventually, and then things start to you know go in their favor. Is the first couple of most of the first couple of meetings that we went to weren't real meetings, the, uh, in the sense that. Um, in an Australian context, or even when we went to Germany, for example, in a more Western context, you go to the first meeting and you're there to talk business and mm-hmm. you get into the numbers. And if you're really like, you know, like depending on your style, you might already just have like a draft contract sent by the end of that first meeting. In Japan, the first meeting is literally just like getting to know you. Can I actually trust mm-hmm. you? A lot of, a lot of the um, business there is done based on trust. And they do other things like they'll check uh, like your corporate filing and see how much capital you've registered with and what's the address and are you located in a dodgy neighborhood and all of these very, very small things that are, um, they seem a little bit um, unusual, but it's all about actually understanding who is this person that I'm about to do business with and can I trust them? And and I love that, right? Because it's long-term partnerships versus short-term gains, right? And so that's like... Why wouldn't you go to that effort if you're the, if you if you've got a partner saying, "Hey, we want to come with the long haul." Totally, exactly, and I think yeah, that's probably the biggest difference between going to Japan and when we launched in Germany. When we launched in Germany, there were still a lot of unknowns for us at that time, and we were like, "We'll start up ways, we'll figure it out as we go." Mm. With Japan, um, it interestingly hasn't taken that much longer, but um, I think just in the way that we prioritized what we did in the setup of Japan feel a lot more comfortable, a lot more confident that we've got something there that will, you know, be a bit bit more lasting because mm-hmm. the depth of those relationships um, will carry us through, you know, the first six, 12 months of the journey. And then there'll probably be a different set of challenges that we'll figure out at that point in time. But I feel a lot more comfortable and confident about, um, yeah, like the first six to 12 months of Japan. Awesome, man. Hey, thanks so much for coming on, man. I'll let you get out there and enjoy the rest of the Sunrise Festival today. What are you hoping to achieve out of today? Yeah, I think um, it's my first time to New Zealand, actually. So really excited to just, um, yeah, I enjoy the city, meet a lot of different people, um, understand what the startup landscape is like in New Zealand as well. And then I think... Are you hanging, for- around, you hanging around at all afterwards? Or? I will be. Yeah, very fortunate to be here with Deal. So like looking to just also give back and 
share a little bit more about the journey as well. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for coming on, buddy. Thanks for having me, Joe. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much, JT. That was awesome, buddy. Really appreciated chatting to you. Some really good lessons in there. Some really good lessons about international growth, which I think is cool for Kiwi companies. And so if you're only coming for the first time today or if you've been here before and you're not subscribing or following, now's your chance to do it. Jump down there right now and push that button because we've got a bunch more of these podcasts coming out and I don't want you to miss them. Until next time, thank you. This podcast is produced by John Otaka from Empire Films.